Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Highline. Today, I'm going to be breaking down the Australian property market to find out why Australia is one of the most least populated places on the globe and has the world's second most expensive property. I've recently turned 26 and I'm not going to lie, I'm feeling a bit of pressure to buy a house. On top of that, the cost of living in Australia is continually going up. It's getting harder and harder to find a rental and the house prices are also continuing to grow. And it's made me a little bit anxious to figure out whether now is the right time to enter the market, but more importantly, to understand why everything keeps getting more and more expensive. The continual rise of house prices in the last 25 years is one of the most interesting topics that we have covered so far on our podcast, and I'm very excited for our conversation today. We're going to look at where it all started with the Australian dream and how that morphed into becoming a national psyche. We're then going to take a look at some of the factors which influence the demand for housing in Australia. We're going to take a look at why we are never able to build enough supply in order to stabilize prices or reduce prices. We're also going to take a look at the government policy, which has shifted Australia's belief from property as a shelter to property as a lucrative investment to make a lot of money. What I want you to get out of today's podcast is the ability to think about property for yourself, to not be influenced by your friends, family, and what society wants you to do, but to actually think about whether purchasing a property is the right move for you. At the end of the podcast, I'll share my two modes of thinking about property, as well as share how we can profit from the scenario that we're in. But like all good things that have compounded over years and years, it all starts with a good story. And the best place to start our conversation today is to understand the origin of the Australian dream. It's my belief that we stole the Australian dream from the Americans who also have the American dream, which is to grow up, get a solid education, and then buy a house for yourself and your family. And this goes back to 1949, where Prime Minister Robert Menzies was looking to solidify his power. How he thought he would do this was to increase the number of homeowners in Australia. This would allow citizens to own a hard asset like a house, which could appreciate in value due to the value of the land. And that would thus increase their net worth and would allow them to continue to vote liberal so that he would remain in power. Now, this was an extremely successful government initiative. Menzies did two things in his government to achieve this. The first is he kept saying that it was a moral imperative for Australians to own a piece of their own land. And this marketing tactic was extremely successful as he repeated it for his 20 years in power. The other thing that he did was he had a government-led initiative to increase the number of houses available in Australia so that Australian citizens could purchase their own home. When Menzies retired in 1961, he increased the housing supply in Australia by 50%, a little more than 10% of the population at the time. The origins of the Australian dream make me think about a quote that I recently read in Morgan Housel's new book, The Same As Ever. The best story wins, not the best idea or the right idea or the most rational idea. The story that just makes people nod their heads and go, yes, tends to be rewarded. What Menzies created was the most successful story in Australian history because it tapped deep into our own self-interest to own and acquire things and to increase our wealth for other people. And the constant repetition of this throughout that 20-year period is really the original demand for housing in Australia. And it's one of the major reasons why I believe, without even saying it, if you went to a young person on the street and you asked them, what do you think the best way to get riches in Australia? They would say, buy property. What I find most crazy about looking into this story was that this was created because a politician wanted to increase his power. The other thing that I learned is every policy input is a result of a political output. And politicians make decisions 
on re-election and nothing else. The other thing that I've learned from our conversations on Highline is that the best stories tend to compound due to mimetic desire. We haven't actually spoken about mimetic desire on the podcast, and I think this is one of the best topics to explain this concept. Mimetic desire is a theory developed by psychologist Rene Girard in the 1990s, and he believes that human desire does not come from what we intrinsically want ourselves. We base what we want on what other people in society value. If we take this concept and we apply it to property, someone buys a house, they get an Instagram pic, everybody comments on it saying, congratulations, you must be so good with your money. What happens is we see other people in society valuing buying a house. But I always question is like, does that person who bought the house intrinsically actually want a house? Do they wanna have the mortgage repayment for the next 30 years and have to work a job? And that is how mimetic desire weaves its way into the narrative. In Australia, purchasing a property is not just a personal aspiration. It's a societal expectation, a collective goal. And over time, this desire has compounded, fed by stories of property being the ultimate pathway to riches. As each generation looks to the previous, seeing property as a marker of success, the story compounds over and over again. And new homeowners enter the market not because they want to, but because it's what society has taught them to value. The result of this is the self-perpetuating cycle that is driven more by societal values rather than personal needs or aspirations. The impact of this belief is significant to Australian society. The first is that a whole generation of Australians, primarily millennials and Generation Z, are really being held back financially by this problem because the cost of our shelter is getting so much at the moment. The second impact of this is that education and hard work are no longer the main determinants of how wealthy you will become. It's more about geography and the house that you might inherit from your parents. Material success is now a function of geography and not accomplishment. It's clear that the crafting of the Australian dream and how it has morphed over time has led people to believe that property is the best way to get rich. And it has been a major creator of wealth in Australia. But the government also has a significant role in increasing or decreasing the demand for housing in Australia. And they do this in a couple of ways. The first is the interest rates, so making money cheap or expensive. The second is with zoning and planning laws. The other is with policy changes. And then lastly, it is with immigration. And we're going to take a look at these factors and how they've influenced property. But the best place to start is with the price of money. And that is controlled by the Reserve Bank of Australia, which controls the interest rate. The interest rate or the cash rate, think of as a giant lever, which represents the money supply in Australia. If the central bank wants to stimulate the economy and increase economic growth, what they do is they make money cheaper by lowering the interest rate. This encourages individuals to purchase larger items like houses or cars. In turn, that usually gives people jobs as the cars require servicing and houses need to be built. And businesses also look to expand their market share by you know, building a new factory, increasing their supply base, hiring more salespeople. And that's typically how economic growth is stimulated due to cheap cost of capital. Sometimes there is a point where lower rates do not lead to more economic output, and that's where you have inflation. But we're not going to get into that in today's episode. If the Reserve Bank wants to cool the economy, what they do is they raise interest rates. So they make buying a house, getting that loan much more expensive. And what happens is people tend to not spend their money and they hold on to their money, they save it up. And that typically is where the economy cools and you see a decrease in economic growth. The movement of the cash rate in Australia is very important to understand because it determines 
how much demand there is for property at certain stages. And in Australia, every time there have been very low interest rates, you have seen the prices of property rise to a new level where they then remain. And the reason why they remain is because there's not enough supply to meet the demand. Hence, prices rise to a new level. So to illustrate this point, let's take a look at the history of rate cuts in Australia in the last 20 years. The first place to start is the dot-com crash, which occurred in the year 2000. In 2000, there were a number of internet companies in the US which went public and turned out not to be very good businesses, and they ended up crashing and failing. This caused the US share market to tumble for a period of six months. And in response, the RBA was worried that this was going to blow over to Australia. So they started systematically lowering rates from 5.5% to 4.25% at the end of 2002. When this typically occurs, what you see is a movement out of the share market and into safer assets like property. What occurred was the exact same thing. You saw the demand for property in Australia skyrocket and the subsequent result was the house prices in Australia at that time from 2000 to 2004 rose to a new high where they remained. And there wasn't enough time for the supply to catch up in order to stabilize that pricing. Then what happened was the economy recovered and the money poured back into the share market and we saw a massive share market run up until the 2008 global financial crisis and the RBA started systematically lowering rates again. The money moved out of the market and into property. And from 2008 to 2012, you saw prices rise to a new high. From about 2012 onwards, the Australian economy covered significantly. We had another mining boom and we saw a massive boost in the share market. From 2015 to 2022 was the worst period in housing in Australia's history. Because what occurred was we had this massive printing of money during COVID and this huge demand for property as the interest rate remained at 0.1%. People were just heading into the market to buy a house as soon as they could. And what occurred was the largest rise in property prices in Australian history with prices rising as much as 60% in places like Sydney and Melbourne. And this is now where the prices remain across the country. Here we see the central bank's lever of being able to control interest rates and moving them up and down and how that causes a ripple effect in the economy. And every time rates have been extremely low, you have seen prices rise to new highs where they still remain. The question is, why can we not build enough supply in Australia to stabilize prices? That is an extremely good question. Well, this is partly due to geography and our town planning. In Australia, our capital cities only have one major CBD. And the introduction of the car really impacted our town planning. After World War II, the car became widely available and we hadn't finished building our cities. So the surrounding 50 kilometer radius around each CBD now became available for development. So we built a lot of low to medium density housing in this area because now people could commute to the CBD. If we compare the construction of our cities to Europe, Asia, or parts of the US, their cities were constructed fully by the time the automobile became widely available, which meant that they had a lot more high and medium density housing because their cities were designed around public transport, horses, and walking. And if we take Berlin as an example, which is one of Europe's largest cities, hosting 3.9 million people in 892 square kilometers, versus Melbourne, which has 5 million people across 10,000 square kilometers. This example highlights the difference between European cities and their town planning and density versus Australian cities. The impact of this is that the surrounding 50 kilometer radius of each CBD is the most sought after property in Australia, but there's only low to medium density housing in this area. And because everybody wants to live in the city, because that's where most of the jobs are, 
it causes the demand for this 50 kilometer radius to be so fierce that the cost of housing in these areas for both rent and to buy a house just keeps rising and rising and rising. The next question becomes then is why don't we just increase the density of the 50 kilometer radius of each CBD? Enter Australian zoning and planning laws. What zoning and planning is, is basically how the government dictates land use. So for example, a government might portion off a piece of land that can be used for commercial use, i.e. to create restaurants, a shopping center, and other types of shops to support a local community, but not a factory. And this is to ensure that you don't have massive industrial zones near people's houses. And in the Australian constitution, it is silent on who controls land use. Therefore, the federal government pushes it down to the states and local councils, like anything else not mentioned in the constitution. The state governments push this down to local councils. And the reason why they do that is to save costs, to absolve themselves of any responsibility, and to ensure that decisions about the community are made close to home. The problem is local communities and local councils are easily corrupted and they can be manipulated by powerful interests in each suburb. One name for these powerful interest groups is NIMBYs, which stand for Not In My Backyard. Now, everybody knows who NIMBYs are. These are the greybeards in each neighborhood that pretty much hate anything that has to do with anything fun. Whether you park on their lawn or steal a couple of their lemons, you're going to get yelled at. And me and my friends had a fantastic time terrorizing these people when we were younger. What occurs in councils is the NIMBYs band together. How NIMBYs tend to stifle new developments in neighborhoods is what they do is they band together with other NIMBYs. And because not a lot of people vote in local elections, they use their voting numbers to elect leaders that act in their interests. So when a new developer comes to their suburb and wants to build a high-rise block, which will increase the number of supply of available dwellings in their neighborhood, that might reduce the property value because there's going to be more supply and the demand might not be there, right? The value of all their NIMBYs homes decrease because most of their net worth is in property. If you are the local leader, you're going to piss off all the people that got you elected. So you tend not to do it. And what has occurred in Australia is a lot of new developments are stifled because they can't get passed through local councils. The impact of zoning, NIMBYism and planning laws is so significant that we've seen house prices rise 54% in Perth, 42% in Brisbane, 69% in Melbourne and 73% in Sydney. This ties together, right, the whole problem that we've been chatting about. We have a large amount of demand for housing due to low interest rates and these periods where interest rates come up and then they come down. Then we have complicated and low density geography due to our town planning and the way that our cities are designed around one CBD, which means the competition for these areas and these suburbs is really fierce, causing the value of the houses in those suburbs to rise. And we can't actually increase the density of these suburbs because of the nimbyism and the ability of individuals and powerful interests to manipulate local councils to stifle new developments. On top of these challenges, there is also government policy which is encouraging people to purchase investment properties rather than purchase a house for a shelter over their head. And there are two pieces of policy in particular that include the introduction of negative gearing in 1987 and the halving of the capital gains tax in 1999. Let's begin with the introduction of negative gearing. Negative gearing sounds complex, but all it is is the ability to offset the loss of owning an investment property against your taxable income. For example, if you own an investment property and the income it generates, the rent, is less than the cost that you pay each year to pay it off, for example, your 
mortgage repayments and any other costs associated with maintaining that property. The difference between the two, you can offset against your taxable income, lowering your income tax, which allows you to have more cash at hand. This was really significant in encouraging people to begin looking for an investment property in order to lower their income tax. And then we have the halving of the capital gains tax in 1999. How this worked previously to this policy change is if you owned a property, it increased in value when you sold it. You would pay at a tax rate of 44%, but this halved to 22%. Now this made it significantly more lucrative to invest in property because the combination of the two allowed you to reduce your taxable income over time. And then if the property increased in value, you could sell it for half the income tax. And that enabled people to shift their perspective from viewing property as a place to live as viewing property as a place to generate a lot of wealth. The whole point of these policy changes was to make the investment in property a lot more favorable in Australia. And this worked and encouraged people to start purchasing one or multiple investment properties so that they could reduce their income tax and potentially make a lot of money flipping houses. The problem is this significantly added to our supply problems because now the people that already owned a property could leverage that property to buy another one and it made it further and further away for the individuals that were just trying to enter the market as the price kept rising because they were just taking up more and more supply. So it's the combination of these two important policy changes that again shifted Australia's perception from having a roof over your head to seeing property as a lucrative investment asset where you can make a lot of money. Now, this is really added to our housing unaffordability problem. The other thing which the government controls is immigration. Net migration has averaged around 200,000 per year for the last 20 years, which has seen the population grow by about 7.2 million from 19.5 million to 26.5 million between the years 2003 and 2023. However, the problem is the total number of houses during this period has only increased by 3 million from 7.2 million to 10.2 million. If we assume that two people live in a house, there's still a shortfall of about 1.2 million houses. The government has failed to support these high levels of immigration by increasing the property supply, which has led to our supply shortfalls. All right, guys, that concludes the main topics that I wanted to discuss today. What's really interesting about studying the property market in Australia is this all started with a politician that just wanted to remain in power. Every policy input is a result of a political output and a good piece of marketing around you know, our own self-interest and our desire to have a place of shelter really fueled this economic beast that Australia is built on and has generated a lot of wealth for a lot of individuals and families. And now we're in this really tough position because we have powerful special interest groups in local councils who do not want to see the development in their neighborhoods because they don't want to see the value of their land decrease. And like Prime Minister John Howard said, nobody has ever complained to me about the value of their house increasing. So we're in a really tough spot. And the challenge with this is I don't see this changing. And here's why. Like I mentioned before, every policy input is a result of a political output. That means that every politician makes choices on policy based on re-election and nothing else. And in Australia, we had a demographic problem where there is more old people than young people. And all the old people own property and they are the majority voter about it. If you're a politician, you are not going to do anything that's going to diminish the value of majority of the voting population's homes. That is complete political suicide. So it's only going to be decades later when our generation, the next generation, potentially can't afford a house that they become the voting majority and that they can actually do something about it. 
that's why it's our job to figure out how we can capitalize on this situation. The first thing I'll say is know what game you're playing. If property is going to be the way that you make money, play that game. It makes sense to save up as much money as you can to purchase a house. The more money you have, the less pressure you'll have, the less interest you'll pay. And it'll be a little bit easier for you to manage the financial obligations of owning a home, among other things. Number two, get a credit card. The earlier you get a credit card, the better your credit rating will be. And this can save you literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Number three, I would say buy a house in a 50 kilometer radius of an Australian CBD. Look for the areas where it used to be cheap rent, but the rent has risen significantly over the last couple of years. And there might be like a little bit of a dodgy crowd in that neighborhood. The reason for this is this is where the bargains are to be had because eventually it'll get so expensive that the dodgy crew will have to vacate. And if you own a large piece of land in this neighborhood that you can potentially subdivide, the value of that land will be worth much more than you pay. You're going to make money on the land value. So buy the biggest block you can with a shitty house on there, which can be you know knocked down in five to 10 years. Job security is important. You're going to need a stable job for the next 20 years. So don't you know prioritize moving around so much as you're going to need a consistent and stable income in order to pay off your loan. The other thing is just make sure your partner is on board and wants the same thing as you. If property isn't the way that you're going to make your money, if you're going to make your money through starting a business, investing or whatever that might be, save up your money and try and utilize that capital for whatever that might be. The other thing is know that you're still going to have to pay money for shelter. So try and minimize that as much as possible. Either live in an apartment or move further away from the city. If you can, get your parents to buy a house for you so that you have a stable shelter and you can just pay off their rent and help them pay off their mortgage. Here, you can take more risks. You can move to different places. The one thing I'll say about this approach is if you have a partner and this is not how they expected their life to be, you're going to have a problem. Make sure they're on board for the ride. If you found this episode really interesting, please could you share it with just one person? I'll really appreciate it and it makes a difference to me. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.